Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sam, I found myself in your room again. When well, the mics are set up. Crazy. Let's have a chat about something. Oh, that's a good idea. What have, you, what have you been reading about this week? Well, I've been following keenly the uh, discussion that's erupted around the movie Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. It had came out to rave reviews, but then after about a week, the hot takes start to set in, start yeah. to sort of sprout up. Everyone's got their own view on it. And Nolan's an interesting filmmaker because he invests so much of his own personality into his movies. They're very distinctively his. And he's also got a set of recurring flaws that film critics love to get their teeth into, basically. So I'm going to use this time to recommend to you a couple of pieces about Dunkirk that I think you should read. There's a good one in New Yorker magazine by Richard Brody, who is a, he wrote a book on Goddard, and I like him because he panned Whiplash in a way that I agreed with. He's written a piece called Dunkirk, a war movie about patriotic ciphers. He's basically arguing that the argument of the film is a paradox because it is all about the British character, but the characters themselves are basically elided in the film. So it's this kind of broad sort of mush spirit the oomph of britain yeah exactly like you just have um the just general british uh jelly of you know um stiff upper lipness is out there on the beach and like anyone any actual personality like there's no backstory his previous films like full of backstory like inception is absolutely packed with it um and in this movie um is completely gone and he describes it as what may be the first VR movie, one that does its best to put viewers literally into the position of combatants and participants in the Dunkirk rescue, as if viewers are meant to fill in the blanks of the characters' inner lives with their own and imagine themselves to be fighting the Second World War for the very preservation of Great Britain. Uh, which is an interesting thing to read because it sort of crystallized something that I've been feeling about the movie, that it's a bit like Cloverfield or like Gravity, these types of films. Yeah, just an experience. Just a... It's just like a roller coaster that you strap yourself into and that that's a, I guess, a fresh way to do the Second World War. And he contrasts it with Saving Private Ryan, which you compared it to in our review last week. But he's saying that like that movie is about like the visceral horror of, of war, whereas the bloodlessness of Dunkirk yeah, makes yeah. it more about this sort of moral struggle to the sort of will to live, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, the other interesting piece is one by film crit Hulk, who no longer writes in all caps so that his pieces are readable, which is quite nice. Uh, but he's not quite Hulk. He's not as Hulk-like as he used to be. He's more Banner, film crit. Bruce he's film crit Bruce Banner now. Yeah. Uh, and he writes on both movies, Death, and he's uh, written a piece about Nolan. It's, he writes in very long pieces, but he's basically... Dunkirk has tweaked for him something about Christopher Nolan that he didn't realize, which is that people think of him as a cold and calculating sort of watchmaker, filmmaker, hence all these comparisons to Kubrick and stuff you know contentious applied to Kubrick as well of course and uh, but he says that it's not that he is cold 
but that he is simply bad at representing emotions that aren't like pain and uh, anguish and like about the <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. horror of life and that his best characters are like the villains because they are you know this pure expression of nolan's own fears and when he tries to do like cathartic emotional moments they just don't ring true because they're treated as kind of abstract things which is very true about interstellar and one of the things that's so funny about that movie is that it's such an emotional film but it treats love like a macguffin <laughs> this is like rather than just like dramatizing the way humans actually interact yeah and it's totally, like um totally sexless movie completely no sexless. one has sex in nolan movies i don't think yeah yeah exactly he's so like All a bunch of virgins. he's so repressed and buttoned up yeah memento do they fucking memento okay well that's a rare moment of emotional intelligence in that movie where he hires the prostitute to like pretend to be his wife oh yeah i mean that's like what like the one nolan that's probably John, jonathan probably wrote that the other, yeah, the jonah other. wrote that one. Oh, jonah yeah. jonah's scene <laughs> the other nolan yeah so so he basically is arguing that he's like emotionally repressed and that's kind of like his movies are him constantly trying to uh, connect with an emotion that he can't deal with or something like that like it's yeah. like therapy for him or something and it's interesting as applied to dunkirk because christopher nolan is a very tory looking guy and he sort of acts like this ultra british sort of uh, tea drinking tough man but that the reactionary feel to the politics uh, or like the weird way that it treats the war you, know, you could argue basically comes more from his own like fucked up psychology than it does <laughs> from some kind of political program right yeah, yeah which makes me feel better about him really yeah although he doesn't still doesn't explain away the absurd like elgar stuff but whatever 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 nolan uh danny yes what the hell is this podcast other than like some sort of nolan ramble you want to know what this podcast is about i'll tell you i'll tell you what it's about it's a podcast which, on the surface, seems just like any other podcast, even if the contributors keep odd hours. But the truth is that the team behind Filmjet are long dead, or should I say, undead. Still, we vampire podcasters are getting by just fine until our senile executive, Katie Rogers, begins hiring humans. In such a tempting treat, parading the halls of Filmjet HQ, it won't be long before the bodies will start piling up is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the classic film Never Beast Incorporated. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran and joining me is a supernatural force of evil, a blood-sucking monster. He's a beast and he should be destroyed. Sam Foster. Never Beast Incorporated is the name I use when I'm gaming online. And I'm always oh, like... Oh, Never Beast Incorporated just joined the game. <laughs> yeah. I'm always, like, insulting people and, like, naming myself to them. You just got owned by the Never Beast, that kind of stuff. It's very it's very effective for gaming. Um, our reviews this week are a nice broad sweep across the indie movie landscape, spanning the globe and a tantalizing selection of genres. Danny will be delivering his verdict on the Syrian Civil War documentary City of Ghosts and the British indie horror film The Ghoul, and I'll pass judgment on the romantic comedy The Big Sick and the Egyptian drama Clash. We'll also be discussing the studio fight that broke out over Henry Cavill's moustache, and the brouhaha surrounding the Game of Thrones creator's decision to make a TV show about slavery. All that should leave just enough time for me to announce my debut film project, an adorable low-key comedy called This Isn't the Sandwich I Ordered. It's a charming romantic tale of a lovable awkward guy called Sam Foster, heavily based on myself, played by myself, and my non-professional acting just adds to the charm of the film. Sam wants to make a film about himself called Cute Romance Boy. This is a bit of a meta, sort of a meta thing. I'm digging it. Um, but he can't get the project off the ground. Then he meets a beautiful girl while he's at a cafe, complaining about his sandwich in a way that's 
annoying, but it's also relatable and endearing. Their relationship and his budding filmmaking career endure some ups and downs, but ultimately everything turns out fine, and every major decision he's ever made in his life is vindicated. Then he emerges a hero, the audience applauds him, and the real Sam is uh, therefore justified in everything he does from then onwards. It's going to be a good film. <laughs> For me, psychologically. The film itself will be garbage. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, Sun John films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. Well, in our week off, there was Comic-Con and a lot of movie news came out of that. And one of the big panels was the Justice League panel. DC and Warner Brothers are in a slightly better position than they were because Wonder Woman was a big critical and commercial smash. But problems are plaguing the Justice League movie. And this new story combines our two favorite kinds of news stories, comic books and turbulent behind-the-scenes problems. Love it. So we didn't cover this, but a few months ago, Zack Snyder stepped away from the Justice League following the tragic suicide of his daughter. And so Joss Whedon was brought in to basically oversee the reshoots and do a bit of script polishing and just deliver the movie. And there were these reshoots that are happening. The reshoots, uh, they're spending $25 million on the reshoots and they've dragged on for roughly two months. And apparently that is more money and time usually dedicated to reshoots, <laughs> which... Uh, Suggest there's some problems with the film. Surprise it so little. But the most amusing aspect of this dragged on process is that Henry Cavill is filming uh, Mission Impossible 6 at the moment for Paramount. And for his character, he grew a ludicrous tash. Big tash. A big tash. Big Cavill tash. And rather than shave off the tash and put on a fake tash when he has to do his Mission Impossible scenes, there must be some sort of petty feud between Paramount and the people at Warner Brothers. They refuse because they own, they technically own Henry Cavill during this time. He's like their commodity. So the Justice League movie has to shoot Henry Cavill with his Mission Impossible 6 moustache and then spend millions of dollars digitally removing it for the scenes they're in. It's fantastic. Which is amazing. I hope and pray they do a bad job. <laughs> I want I want to be like able to... Up in one frame. <laughs> I want to be able to see that moustache. You know, I, I have no interest in seeing the Justice... Actually, I do have an interest in seeing it because now it's going to be a combination of the terribleness of Zack Schneider with the complete weird behind-the-scenes uh, messing with of the Suicide Squad. So it could be yeah. the worst DC movie yet. It's going to be... be yeah, amazing... it's, like some, it's like some perfect love child of awfulness. <laughs> and Joss Whedon and Zack Snyder's sensibilities couldn't be more different. Yeah. Um. So I like... I'm going to enjoy the gear shift between his... Uh, somber atlas shrug Can't loving like, scenes like, and all these like guys quippy. with like 400 abs each are just suddenly like these sort of lovable nerds joshing each other and basically I'm, yeah i want to see this movie now but more than seeing this movie i want to see the vfs breakdown for his mustache scenes. oh i really hope there's like a, a mustache cut on the dvd yeah <laughs> where it's like you can just tell what the reshoots are or maybe like maybe there'll be an employee who will like leak the like oh, mustache please, please. 
If you're on. listening, if you're listening, any of the Warner Brothers whistleblowers out there, anyone working for one of the VFX companies uh, that they've outsourced the, the uh, graphics work to, um, Please. just leak it. Leak, leak it, it to film chat. You know, you know, you want to. I mean, do you think he'll be just obviously look CGI? That there'll just be bits where he looks like uh, Peter Cushing in Rogue One. Well, you know? when we see this movie, just the mo- the biggest form my mind will be. This scene with moustache or without moustache? I need to be staring so hard at his upper lip trying to work out if it's computer generated or not. Also, sorry thing about this news story is that it spoiled the fact that Superman's coming back. I thought he was dead. I thought he was it dead. Was a huge surprise <laughs> when he came back. I thought back. he was dead. I thought he was dead. Why do they need Cavill back? Why, why is he shooting? Why is he, shooting is he the playing Justice a new character? Has he been, have they recast him in a different role now? Is he just playing like Batman's friend, James? You know, it'd be great if he just sort of grew his tash, he grew the tash just to make his disguise even like shitter. Like his Clark Kent, the famously bad Clark Kent disguise. And like now, like Superman's got a moustache and Clark Kent's got a moustache at the exact same time and they still can't put the two together. <laughs> it's like, gets more and more like facial, you know, sculpture. It grows a beard, like gets a beard. Gets beard. a tattoo gets of a, a tattoo. spider web on his cheek. Uh, Clark, you've got the same Superman tattoo. Wait, is that one flaming tear tattoo you've got coming out of your eye? That's pretty cool looking. Superman's got one of those, doesn't he? It's like, oh yeah, I really admire the guy, you know, I love his cool tats. I can't wait. My favorite, my most anticipated film of 2017, Justice League Part 1. Part 1, bring it on. <laughs> bring it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So a lot of arguing going on between Paramount and Warner Brothers. A lot more arguing going on between HBO and the rest of the internet. They have announced an upcoming original series called Confederate, uh, which is going to be helmed by the creators of Game of Thrones, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. And it is controversial because the television series postulates that the South won the American Civil War and America grew into a country where slavery remains legal. And it's the TV show will chronicle the events leading up to the third American Civil War. So there's going to be more Civil War breaking out. And this is a very interesting controversy because it's erupted. It's not based on something that has actually happened. It is simply on the prospect of something coming out and being bad has engendered a lot of outrage. And there's a lot of interesting facets to this story, which I will by no means be able to uh, do justice to. Uh, But I really, more Sam recommendations. This is more like a digest than a podcast at the moment. But uh, I I listened to this episode of Still Processing, the um, uh, New York Times podcast that... um, Wesley Morris does with Jenna Wortham, uh, two black cultural critics who work for the New York Times. And they, they talk about this and it's it's really fascinating because there's been a couple of other things also recently that have engendered a similar kind of outrage based around white people taking on black issues. So uh, Catherine Bigelow has this movie Detroit coming out about the riots in Detroit and police brutality against black people, which is obviously very timely. But people have been complaining about the movie because it's like, you know, is it this white? Yeah, exactly. This sort of white gaze thing. Uh, And there's also an artwork that caused a lot of controversy by um, an artist called Dana Schultz. uh, Schutz, I should say. I think Dana Schultz is the actress from Ghostbusters uh, or the character even maybe. But anyway, Dana Schutz. She did a uh, piece called Open Casket. It's a painting uh, of Emmett Till, 
and uh, in his little boys in his casket and she's a white artist and that caused a similar kind of thing because people saw it as an exploitation of black suffering in a way and there's a whole like melting pot of things i mean firstly one of the problems that there has been in culture is like white people refusing to engage with racism so in a way the fact that like they're confronting it you know is a good thing but at the same time there are problems around white people being the gatekeepers of black art you know and like the fact that they're doing it rather than enabling black people to deal with these issues yeah and there's also the issues with like uh, modern internet culture and the way that these things erupt so early on in the process so like is it really legitimate to be furious that hbo has commissioned this tv series before it's even it doesn't exist and yeah. it's not the, the the problem is not necessarily the concept the problem is like who's doing it so it's not that you shouldn't be able to make a tv show about what if slavery still existed in america but that like there are two white guys doing it and people are angry because they assume the product is going to suck but it's like is that fair i mean should you just let them make the thing and then you can judge them for it but yeah, the way yeah. that the way that the conversation happens in modern culture is that it becomes a massive issue the second it's like remotely out the door and everyone's like cancel the fucking thing <laughs> you know and this artist has been like um there's been calls for her to uh like there's this other gallery that's showing her work they're not even showing this painting but like there's calls for the like there's like protesters trying to prevent the gallery from hosting and like yeah you know so it becomes this she's whole been blacklisted she's been blacklisted uh well i don't think she actually has been blacklisted because i think she, they would still host her but um but it's a it's a fascinating convergence of different things and it's quite hard to pin down like what is actually the correct you know, response to these, to these issues. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, because the premise just sounds like your classic kind of sci-fi premise where you just sort of take the problems of today and amplify it to a ludicrous extreme. Like, 984 is basically just, you know, just the tenets of society taken to an endpoint. Yeah, it's like, ex- like extreme fascism, basically. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know if it's like that's a pretty standard approach to the, an issue. Yeah, you know, absolutely, sort of yeah. Issue. But it's, yeah. Yeah, it's not conceptually I mean, very out there, yeah. but it's just like, it's very specifically about a particular thing. I mean, all the, uh, you know, characters who aren't white in Game of Thrones kind of suck. So, I mean... I think maybe <laughs> part of the reason people are not happy about this is because Game of Thrones is not exactly like the wokest show. It's going to be like, every character is going to be like Grey Worm. You'll be like, oh God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. But like, they, it's a show which has had controversies in the past from the way that they've mishandled socially sensitive issues, particularly around yeah. sexual violence. And so, like... Also, Game of Thrones has a white woman freeing a load of slaves and make, they make her, her queen, their queen. Yes, absolutely. It does have the this most sort of, character. Yeah, it does have this real, like, white white man's burden type, the white saviour storyline. She's very entitled, isn't she, Khaleesi? Very fucking entitled. Very fucking entitled. Why don't you get that speech last of it about, like, I was born to her, I was like, fuck off. Fuck off, shut the fuck <laughs> shut up. Shut the fuck up, I hope you don't win. I genuinely <laughs> do not want her to win the well, Game of Thrones. better than you. Yeah, I genuinely sort of do now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, she's a pain in the neck. Uh, but That's no, it's completely true. There's like there is there are troubling racial undertones to the entire Khaleesi storyline. So I don't think people are like, well, look at how great they did Game of Thrones so well. I'm sure they can't get this story about slavery wrong. Like a week after this, Amazon, who are sort of I guess in competition, they're in the sort of TV market. Everyone's now, making their own prestige TV. Kind now. of trolled HBO because they've got a alternate history, race focused drama in the works called Black America, where their version of events is that. 
following the civil war there was actually reparations given to the slaves and they uh, took over some of the southern states and then it seems like it's almost like some of the states became this kind of mini black cuba and it's the 150 years since that happened following various like assassinations and military incursions and how that relates in a modern sense which sounds like a far more interesting idea it actually does sound like a much more interesting idea there's like some sort of black utopia versus the u.s and that sounds fucking awesome yeah i guess i remember you mentioned this maybe when we were talking about dogs are heroes and like what's the point of having a fantasy show which is like sucks more than reality if you're gonna have like an outlandish premise want to make it like a better version than you know the world as it exists yeah yeah and that's much harder to do conceptually than the world worse than it exists yeah i, I like that I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my Amazon Prime account for another two years. So I'm gonna watch. get my Amazon. Prime. I'm gonna cancel my torrenting of HBO account. <laughs> I'm gonna my I'm gonna... My, my, my HBO theft account is getting cancelled. That's it, Pirate Bay. <laughs> I'm not buzzing you anymore. I'm out. I'm out. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astonishingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, City of Ghosts, this is directed by Matthew Hyman, who previously made Cartel Land, which you can hear the film chat review of at some episode in the past. The entire back catalog's there. Just find it. It's a good review of a good movie. Open up the page. Control F. Control F. Put in Cartel Land. You'll find it. Look it up. And this documentary is all about the group of citizen journalists from Syria who operate under the banner RBSS. Raqqa is being silently slaughtered. Raqqa being uh, this big city in Syria, which has become the headquarters of ISIS. And the film documents how the group was formed in the wake of Assad being deposed and ISIS sweeping into power and how their group has evolved over the years, how they operate, as well as how ISIS has changed in their media output as well. So I thought this film was great. Immediately after watching it, I was very taken with it because it's very powerful and it's got a very powerful ending. On reflection, there are a few aspects to it that I don't think are super successful in the way the story is constructed. But just by virtue of the subject matter... It's a very, uh, it's, I don't know, it's kind of super compelling. And I don't want to talk down Matthew Hyman's achievement because he's done a very good job. But I feel that even the most inept documentarian, if they had this kind of access, these people are so interesting that you could just make a great documentary about it. Yeah. The most crappily executed version of this story would still be good. So the documentary is almost a thriller and it reminded me in part of Citizen Four. But I have to say, after seeing what these journalists have to do to survive... Fucking Edward Snowden had it easy. Just chilling in his Hong Kong room for four days. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, it's hard. Oh, the world wants to arrest me. Oh, oh, oh my mini bar's almost empty. Oh, I live in Russia. Shut Pussy. up. Shut up. Um, and it's just fascinating the mechanics of how this group work because they've got a external team who are operating uh, currently in Germany, though it could be anywhere now because they constantly have to move safe houses. And they've got this team in Syria pretty much the bravest people in the world who are smuggling out this footage and there is this kind of war of attrition where ice is trying to clamp down they're like limiting internet access and they've got to go to these sort of like elaborate methods to get the stuff out and it's the kind of stuff of like a sort of feels like almost like a throwback 1940s cold war thriller you know like just the um, mechanics of it that's all very is thrilling. there any mi- is there a microfiche no, no, but it's like, you know, the digital equivalent of that because they've got these trucks roaming around the city monitoring all the internet. So they can only go online for a few minutes and like upload it really quickly and they've got to shut down, like flee wherever they're going before people come around and you know, murder them. And it's, uh, you know, that makes for a very gripping documentary. I can imagine, yeah. 
there's also just this morbidly fascinating totally surreal element to the footage in Raqqa because ISIS employ these horrific barbaric techniques where they you know execute people in the town square and like string people up on trucks and parade them around town but then as the movie kind of documents they've become like this sort of slick media output so they make these movies about them executing people but they're shot like Hollywood films with like slow motion and sound effects and stuff and it's this weird disconnect where it's like acts you expect from like the 9th century with technology of the 21st yeah and it is like you have to watch it to like, know, med- they're like it. medieval vloggers yeah, like medieval it's vloggers. Like, yeah it's absolutely insane and that stuff is um very engrossing in a horrific kind of way if i did have a problem with the movie it has this framing device of the members receiving an award at this uh, freedom of press show in america Uh, which feels a little unnecessary and it's much more successful when it's just the key members of the group narrating their stories for interview and voiceover and i'm not sure if this is a fault of the film or it just assumes a bit more familiarity with the situation than i had but it doesn't really give you much of a backstory about raqqa or syria in general it's like Assad was in control for 40 years then there was the arab spring the isis took over and that's kind of like dealt with in about five minutes and i think I mean, I'm judging this only on two films, but there's a certain, like, Matthew Hyman just likes his movies to be quite pacey, and there's a kind of thriller aspect to these films, which wasn't detracting, but I would happily have let it, you know, it's only 92 minutes, and it's quite lean, and it could have happily been two hours, the footage was so, you know, engrossing, but, you know, that's a small, a small quibble. Well, it seems like a good place to be in if you're criticising the movie for being too short, like... Too short, I wanted to give me more. Yeah, and his focus isn't really on the geopolitical situation so much as the journalists. And it's kind of similar to Cartel Land in that the title implies it's about a place, but it's actually about people. And if there's a connection, I guess, it's about individuals trying to do something about an unjust system and the toil that takes on them as people. And all the people in the interviews are, as you would expect, very open. Like the whole point of their institution is transparency. And um, it's just very powerful depicting how ordinary people have become extraordinary through the circumstances they found themselves in. And uh, this might seem a bit flippant, but there is something almost like a sort of dystopian sci-fi sort of thing where it's like, what were you like before the war? Like, you know, this one guy was just a maths teacher and now he's hiding out in Germany, smuggling this stuff out. And uh, the film doesn't skimp on the fact that like their nerves are like, completely shot and they're like always chain smoking. And uh, they live in this constant... Um, just to seem even cooler. <laughs> just to seem even cool, but they live in this constant, like, fear. Like, there's stuff like uh, ISIS, like, on Twitter and social media. Like, we found out these guys are in Germany. Any jihadist lions want to take them out? And they're like, shit, we're going to move house because some fucking nut is going to come and murder us. But the fact that they are depicted as so vulnerable just adds to how courageous they are. And um, it's a very welcome counterpoint to the narrative you've seen in news lately of people young kids like watching stuff and being radicalized and they're kind of young kids who have in their own way been radicalized but for, for the, good, for for the, the forces guys. of good yeah and uh yeah it's got a very powerful ending and i was like my life is i gotta fucking do something in my life these people are insane i gotta i don't yeah. know i'm gonna go for a jog tomorrow <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna start that blog i've been thinking about <laughs> yeah i mean it's a quite a blunt movie but it kind of has to be um, did you feel like there was that it was coming from any particular political perspective? Because Syria is such a total clusterfuck. Like the internal politics are quite complicated because there's loads of different factions, and yeah. it's also this like uh, peace in a wider sort of geopolitical 
conflict and that the general discussions around it tend to be very loaded because um, it's almost a uh, some sort of pseudo second Cold War thing as well because yeah, people yeah. see uh, you know Russia being on one side and like the West being on another. So is like does that any of that seep into the movie? Or did it feel like you know a genuinely non like from 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 a very human rather than from a yeah, political perspective? Yeah. Well. Racker is being silently slaughtered are a non-partisan organization. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wish I knew a bit more about the history, to be honest with you. I need someone smarter uh, to watch the movie and explain to me all the stuff in it. Mm. Um, so I would personally would have valued a bit more context. I watch documentaries to ex- seem smart. I don't want to feel stupid. I want you to educate me so I can just pass it off as my own opinions later, Heinemann. But your movie is very powerful, so <laughs> I'll let it slide this once. <laughs> Looks like Sam's got a film to review, he's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you, that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much, and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. From one powerful film to another. Whoa, this is a, this is a film about real, real shit. Uh, well there's some real shit in it. It's The Big Sick. It's a sort of low-key rom-com from the Apatow production house. Very Apatow-y. It's sort of, people really love it. I think they love it more than they uh, love most such films. So I was excited to uh, go check it out. Went to see it yesterday. It is written by Kumail Nanjiani and uh, his real-life wife, Emily Gordon. And kind of is based on the start of their own relationship. Uh, He plays himself, basically. He has his own name. And he's a comedian living in Chicago, uh, he meets Emily, who in the movie is played by Zoe Kazan, and uh, they hit it off, they start dating, and then she falls uh, under a sort of mysterious illness, she catches an illness, um, and the doctors put her into a coma to kind of stabilize her condition, and that obviously is a bit of a spanner in the works. Here is a clip of the two of them meeting, their meet cute scene. Hi. Hi. Um, my name's Kamel. <laughs> yeah, we know. Yeah, we saw you perform. Now that the niceties are out of the way, um, I have to tell you that when you yelled at me, it really threw me off, and uh, you really shouldn't heckle comedians. It's so rude. I didn't heckle you. I just woohooed you. It's supportive. Okay, that's a common misconception. Uh-huh. But yelling anything at a comedian is considered heckling. Heckling doesn't have to be negative. So if I, if I yelled out, like, you're amazing in bed, <laughs> that'd be a heckle? Yeah, it would be an accurate heckle. Wow. Oh. <laughs> oh. Look at that hitting it off. Oh. Oh. I end up in a coma. Oh, she, oh, does. she does. She does. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is one of those occasions where I feel a bit out of step with the, with the consensus because I did not much care for this film. Yeah, I think the crew consensus is out of step with you, Sam. I agree. Idiots. I, I think I want to declare my prizeness a bit because, like, you know maybe it's the fact that I just went to see it in a relatively empty screening where there were not going to be big laughs and I was seeing the film by myself and you know it's probably not ideally you want to be going in there like with your own uh, boyfriend or girlfriend and just soaking in the lovely cutesiness while a huge uh, audience of people laughs around you and you get swept up in it so I was not seeing it in that kind of uh, situation Um, but it did leave me rather cold I think uh, firstly, this is this isn't going to sound like a very film critic-y thing to say, but it's it's just not that funny. Like <laughs> the jokes are not that good, and like it's it's a bit like um, something like Funny People, like a movie about comedians uh, where the characters are comedians and they do stand up, but like the stand up isn't very good. 
So he's a professional stand-up. There's quite a lot of stand-up in it. Yeah, and I didn't think his stand-up was that good. Like it just isn't that funny. I was I was like, I'm sorry, Kumail. I'm sorry, buddy. You know, you had your whole oeuvre of stand-up material to choose from. I guess this is like the movie is at the beginning of your career, so maybe you did you know, like uh, deliberately it? chose the weaker stuff, whatever. But I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't sort of. Um, it didn't. See, it wasn't like fizzing, and it's very. Yeah, yeah. It's a very. The tone of it is kind of flat. Like the direction of it is very, very flat, and so it relies very heavily on the interpersonal stuff and that you being invested in them. Zoe Kazan is very good in it. I think she's very like. Uh, she's very, very likable. She's just like naturally likable, and they, you know, they. I don't know if they have chemistry or I just liked her. <laughs> um, but her role is is very much of a type even though the movie was co-written by the person who that actually is uh there's like one or two touches that uh felt a bit more interesting than the regular sort of rom-com there's like an early dating scene where he's showing her a movie and she's like how many girls have you shown like old b-movie horrors to on the third date to try to you know impress them whatever and that felt like it was drawn from a real experience but it's still that kind of like bubbly adorable i've got all these funny quirks character feels kind of familiar and also conceptually there is an issue in making a whole romance where two-thirds or three-quarters of the movie one half of the romance is in a coma that relationship cannot move forwards while she is in a coma obviously (laughs) and like and so it makes it unbalances the film so like the film is not becomes only about him and it's like the natural like narcissism or like ego or whatever that you need to have to make a film about you with the you know your character has your name is enhanced by the fact that like suddenly there's this laser like focus on like how is this poor guy going to cope with like his girlfriend in a coma mm. but He's like a real victim it's what you know it's like you you can't worry about her really him sort of like moping in confusion is feels you know very secondary i mean it's a very it's like a very woody allen-esque film uh, but Woody Allen, in his, you know, early better films, in his, like, good films, um, he is, the, the, the main characters are avatars of him, but there is a, because he, you know, d- doesn't like himself in a lot of ways, there is a certain amount of a critical view on his own persona. Yeah. And it's also quite a strong personality. I know, like, the Woody Allen thing has become a total cliche, but, like, that's partly because it's a very strong personality. And Kumail is just a kind of nice, he's just nice, nice. you know? And he's and he sort of he's got a wry he's sort of wry sideways glancing nice comedian man. He's very he's not given himself any kind of interesting characteristics as a film character. He's just like I'll just be me. I'm a nice guy, you know. And it's not very compelling. It's like why do I care about you? <laughs> um, I don't. The other half of the movie is the kind of uh, is the cultural aspects. He's born in Pakistan and he's got a Pac- Pakistani family. Um, and there's like culture comedy about how his family wants him to, they, they're trying to arrange a marriage for him and they invite constantly, his mother is constantly inviting eligible girls around to have dinner and then, you know, they talk and they're like, they're, they're trying to marry him off to a Pakistani girl and they don't want him to marry a white girl. And obviously it's not my place really to critique this because it's his own culture and you know he knows what he's doing and everything but it just felt to me like the the gaze of the film was really white because there's this comparison of two cultures and i feel like the movie does not leave you in any doubt at all about which is like the good one yeah yeah he's from a sort of comedy culture that's mainly used for gags but 
the the american culture is like the normal one right, right that's like the better one because you're not you can marry whoever you want and it fits in with your surroundings and it's not like the sort of bumbling parents with their funny ways and it's just like I didn't feel like it was a super interesting or sensitive look that at a different culture. It just felt like the cliches that you're familiar with, mainly. So it, it sort of leaves him caught between these two things where they, they only exist to sort of reflect on him, like the, cons- the cultural constraints that he's faced with his parents and like his romantic issues with his girlfriend, you know, suffering this illness. But both those things are kind of more interesting than him. There's a bit in the movie where his mother is like, I haven't seen my own mother for 15 years you know i came over here to like help you and i was suddenly like you know what your life is more interesting than his life <laughs> and like yeah. the fact that your girlfriend is like uh has suffered this terrible illness and has to deal with that that is also more interesting than your fucking problems and like your like idiot roommate and your sort of like gaggle of comedians who you you know joke around with at the club are just like boring people who don't have real problems so I think, yeah, it's because I wasn't laughing that much. All of this other, like, yeah, yeah. the stuff around the drama of the movie, just the fact that it wasn't quite gelling was, seemed more obvious. And there's, like, a handful of scenes in it which work better. It's probably about, like, five scenes in the film that felt, like, the, you know, genuine um, and that they were working. But other than that, I don't know. I'm a bit, I, I kind of over that mode of film where it's a successful comedian who's, like, I think that my, you know, this part of my life is so interesting, it should be an entire film. And it's, it doesn't, I don't know if it really justifies itself because it feels like such a vanity project, ultimately. You know, I'm Kumail, here's my film, it's called Kumail Gets a Hot Girlfriend. And it's very, it's not very, like, self-examining. It's very self-justifying. He's basically just does all the right stuff and he's just, like, a good person. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know. And to finish finish off, the final thing that bugged me, <laughs> I literally left the cinema muttering, that's bullshit to myself, uh, is that when the movie ends, the first thing that you see in the credits is a shot of Kumail and his actual wife. And there's, like, a there's like a thing that points, an arrow pointed to it, and it says, the real Emily. And I was like, that just erases Zoe Kazan's entire performance from the film it's like the movie is like, can you just black out the face of the professional actress who's like worked on this movie and imagine that it was actually this real person instead? You know? Yeah. It's, it's her role. Like you, the movie should be about those two people, not like about one of them isn't real. The other one is real. And you just got to mentally put in the real one. Is that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was kind of like, poor Zoe Kazan, you know? She's like helped you tell your story. And now you're like, oh, no, no, you, no, this is the real element, Emily. It seemed like the, the the final stamp of like ego on this project that I didn't particularly care for. So I don't know. I feel like quite mean spirited because everyone else seems to love the movie, but it left me cold. Like it's a bit of a sort of Jimmy Stewart, you know, vertigo move. He's Kim Novaking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is very much like that. Well, you're. I will say. Look, I have a. I have a final. I have a final thing. You. When I was complaining about this movie to you after seeing it, your line was like, "It sounds like you just someone showed you their Facebook photos." And I was like, that is exactly how the film felt. <laughs> a little break now in the show. Cause Danny has to blow his nose. And Sam is trying on different clothes. And Katie's cooking sausage rolls. I think they're almost done. Done, 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 done.
The Ghoul. This is the debut film of director and writer Gareth Tunley, who is probably best known as an actor. He starred in Kill List and Down Terrace. And Ben Wheatley is an executive producer on the movie. He also played uh, Gog from the episode of The Peep Show, where they're at the barbecue and Superman's are smoking some uh, crack. The crack was E. Morish. Yeah, the crack was E. Morish. I remember that it. guy. Gog. Gog, yeah. Um, so the plot is that Tom Meaton plays a cop called Chris who's investigating a double homicide where confusingly it looks like the victims have kept on walking towards the killer even though he shot them several times. Why do they keep on moving? It makes no sense. And the only clue he has is a character called Coulson who's been seen hanging around the crime scene and Chris finds out that Coulson sees a psychiatrist and in order to get access to his psychiatric files he poses as a sad, lonely, reclusive guy and goes to see... Uh, Coulson's therapist but is he a patient posing as a cop or a cop posing as a patient and what follows is a sort of twisty turny social realist occult film noir kind of genre mashup loads going on loads going on are there ghouls in it no oh, spoiler. the ghouls are not in it <laughs> I will go on to this point <laughs> and I say it's a really engrossing film that escapes the limits of its tiny tiny budget by sheer invention and it's a very pleasingly twisty movie, which constantly wrong fits you. And even the title is misleading because the ghoul isn't some supernatural being. It's not really a horror film. It's more about a study of paranoia and depression. And it does a really good job of keeping you hooked scene to scene. There's always stuff going on. And key to this is the direction editing, which is really excellent. And it moves at a real pace. It's only 82 minutes long. And it feels like it was lean to begin with, but then whatever fat there was has been completely exercised. This movie has got 0% fat content. And the invention of the editing and the way it's constructed, which I can't really go into because it'll spoil the movie, does a really good job of mitigating the fact that it has no budget whatsoever. And on one hand, the cheap kind of grayness works for the film because it's a very kind of moody, atmospheric piece where like London looks a bit miserable and everyone in it is a bit sad but there are a few moments where the budget really really creaks and it's like they literally had no money in this film but you know good on them because they made a film and it's great the cast are all excellent they're full of recognizable faces from British comedy and I feel a bit like Gareth Tunley has called in a lot of favors and it's got Alice Lowe in it and uh, Dan Skinner and a few people I recognize from various comedy over the years and they all do excellent work and it made me think that comedy sketch actors are just good they're kind of the same as character actors if they've got you know they've only got five minutes of screen time and they've got to like you know nail their character that's what they've been doing for years and they do a really excellent job of that the lead tom meaton is really good and he's well obviously being the lead has the trickiest role because the entire film was a bit of a mind fuck on a movie and he's the center of it and he's got to play two different characters as sort of the same person but he does a really good job of navigating that and it's a movie that I imagine will reward repeat views. Um, there's obviously a Ben Wheatley connection in that he's exactly produced it. And it's not so much it owes a debt to kill this, but it does feel like it's operating in the same kind of atmosphere of this weird genre mashup, which feels very, very British. And that kind of mixture of genres just makes it a really interesting watch. And it makes the kind of point that the kind of supernatural elements and the study of human psychology are quite natural bedfellows. Like the idea of feeling you're cursed and actually being cursed actually kind of dovetail together quite nicely. And it also feels very, I don't know, quite timely. I feel in the same way Kill List has a certain mood that kind of captures a slight uh, Iraq war post-noughties kind of inertia. This kind of sums up a certain 2016 misery. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And yeah, I would urge people to go see it. I mean, if three people see it, it's probably recouped its budget. And it's, you know, it's out on the weekend. And like, if you Google it, there'll be a few screenings. I know the Genesis Cinema are doing a few and they're doing some Q and A's up and down the country. And I imagine it'll be on demand quickly afterwards, but it is well worth a watch. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Clash. This is a movie I saw last week. It's a film that was made in 2016, but it happened to be showing, uh, well, it was actually showing the Ritzy. I feel pretty bad. I crossed the uh, metaf- picket fence. Well, it wasn't really a picket line there at the time. You but scab. <laughs> total scab. But I'm going to donate to that strike fund to make up for it, which I should have done by now. So I also feel bad about that. But my guilt aside, it was on their like Discovered Tuesdays thing. And uh, I didn't know anything about it, but uh, just went and saw it. And it's set in Egypt in 2013 after the fall of President Morsi, who came to power following the Arab Spring in 2011. So it's like in a period of great upheaval for Egypt. And there were massive protests um, after President uh, Morsi became president. And the army then removed him from power in a kind of military coup. And then in the subsequent days, there were continued massive demonstrations, both from supporters of President Morsi, who were the Muslim Brotherhood, and supporters of the army, who were protesters against Morsi and were happy to see him removed. And the film is set entirely in a police van. And uh, as this sort of chaos unfolds over the course of a day, when there's like riots and demonstrations going on everywhere, and more and more people are brought into the van, it's starting off with a couple of journalists, and then various other people from the demonstrations and the protesters and different sections of Egyptian society are sort of like packed in there. And there's about 20 people in this tiny van. They also have to fit in you know, the, the camera apparently for shooting. Uh, I thought it was great. It's very gripping, very intense, and fascinating in the way that it depicts the, uh, the state of Egyptian society at that time. It's ingeniously directed within this enclosed space. So it's got this like, it's this sort of formal exercise in how you can make a film interesting when you cannot really do anything with the camera and your characters can barely move because there's so many people inside this van. Um, and there's also a lot of characterization work that you have to do in order to be able to distinguish them. And a lot of them are just like bearded young men, so they don't even look very different. But it's that's all done extremely cleverly. It kind of reminded me a bit of 12 Angry Men, where there's like just very neat work done quickly to make sure that you remember who everyone is. Everyone has their little thing, and yeah. you can just like keep track of who people are. And it's a politically very interesting film because the setting of it is unusual in that you usually conceive of large public struggles like this as being a kind of like demonstrating people who are like the voice of the people and then you know against like the government or the elites or like the army who's you know the the forces of power who are opposing them and in this case there are basically two opposing publics there's the the uh, muslim brotherhood people and like the army supporting people um and so there's the question of who actually constitutes the will of the people in this situation and what is like who is ex- um, exploiting who power wise uh, because like the police are obviously very oppressive and they behave very oppressively in the film but many of the protesters are support like protesting in support of the police and they're, they're sort of yelling that they support the police as the police drag them and throw them into the van <laughs> and it's it's the thing that makes it so fascinating is that like it's sort of about how the that these opposing forces are like when you sort of make them granular and, and then turn them into personalities you don't sort of like lose the sense of political forces colliding but that you more recognize that there's this like this maelstrom that has swept up the entirety of egyptian society and 
there's basically a lot of sides to everything if that makes sense there's not like there's like a spectrum where on the one end there are sort of committed political activists there's one guy who's like kind of a like fundamentalist terrorist religious type um and then there's people who are just relatively ordinary boring there's like a kid who just wants to be a dj and he's like swept up in it as well but that this is a spectrum rather than like one side and the other side yeah and that everybody obviously has their views on what's going on and there's like massive differences between people who are kind of on the same side of this conflict and then like putting them all in a situation where they basically have to struggle to survive and then go through the same shit is kind of fascinating and it it's like the way that it constantly tosses and turns people and like gives them new relationships with each other and develops them in interesting ways is just very ingeniously done. It's a very inventive film in the terms of like the way it dramatically uh, builds the characters. And it's also a very cleverly like mounted film. It looks very big budget, even though it's set inside this van, because when shit pops off outside the van, it's just quite impressively staged mass riot scenes are going on out there. And I don't know what the budget of this movie was, but it's genuinely like edge of your seat stuff. And it's it looks like footage of a real riot, basically. But obviously, the you know, it clearly isn't. Yeah, yeah. Like the movie has the atmosphere. It's got this kind of handheld style that gives it the atmosphere of a like, you know, someone shot this on a phone, like journalist thing. But it's done much too. Like, you can tell at the same time that it's staged in a very filmic, cinematic way. And I don't know, it did a number on me. It was very successful. I watched it with my friend Catherine. She was very emotional <laughs> after the end of it, but it's just very tiring. Oh, kind of wears you out. Oh, Catherine. Ugh, so no, emotional. but it is. It's like an exhausting film. The only like thing that I wasn't quite sure about about it was, well, I don't know enough of the nuances of the political situation in, in Egypt to kind of pass comment on like what it was exposing and whether it was accurate to the situation in Egypt and whether it was biased in one way or another. I don't really know. It felt very even-handed. But there is a bit of the towards the end of the movie where like the depiction of the rioting crowd starts to turn into a sort of zombie goes like a zombie (laughs) film mode almost, which is very thrilling, but a potentially problematic in that these are people. They're not zombies that the the zombie metaphor doesn't necessarily work when applied to a a crowd with a political making a political protest. And it's almost like the politics of the situation are gone and people have just completely lost their minds. And I don't know if that's fair or not i mean perhaps it is but there's obviously also political there is a real political struggle going on it's not just like a mindless riot there are politics there uh, but i don't know if that's like a comment by the filmmaker or if that's just simply the result of ratcheting up the tension and borrowing from like another you know genre to do so but anyway highly recommend checking it out it's called clash directed by a guy called Mohammed diab and it's well good when Zach heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Danny? Yes. You mentioned, uh, we were talking a bit earlier about Cavill's moustache adventure. His stupid moustache, yes. He had to grow in for Mission Impossible. He could not shave it off, and yet he had to be Superman. It's uh, amazing. Well, in the 15-second jingle that we just heard, I called him up. Oh, wow. And so, uh, I don't really want you to speak to him. Okay. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've got his number. He gets a bit antsy if he speaks to more than one person at once. Sure. So, but I'm just going to call him and we can have a little chat about it. Okay. Hello? 
Henry. Hello. Oh, it's you. That's definitely your voice. Yes, it's me. This is uh, Sam from from Film Chat. Hello, Sam. Thanks, uh, thanks for answering my call. I know you're a busy guy. We'd heard that you were having some uh, trouble on the the, the reshoots for mm. Superman because you have a giant moustache. So how how are you finding that? What's your what's your take on the whole situation? Well, such is the trade. I mean, I angled for Superman to have a moustache. Where I said, Zach, what about a moustache? And he said, no, no, Cavill, no. And I said, go on, a moustache, Zach. And he said, he said, no. I said, go on, then. And he said, no, a third time. And I thought it would be churlish to ask any further demands for a moustache. Can you take us through your moustache regime? Certainly. Well, I start the day with ten minutes of fara combing, followed by an application of blue cream, and then wash those out. And then I apply a thick coat of Moroccan oil. After that, a quick blow dry, and I'm ready to go. So after you've got such a luscious moustache, do you then find it a little bit annoying to uh, have to have it you know, green screened out? Yes. What, so what do you do? Do they put green dots on your moustache? How does that work? They paint it green uh, using a dye, which, I mean, it takes a while to get out. So they dye it green? Well, you say dye, I say paint. Let's call the whole thing off. Um, there's been... The critical reaction to your moustache uh, has been mixed. Is it, like, at all disappointing to you when you read some of the reviews of your moustache and you see that, uh, you know, maybe the moustache didn't get the, the reviewing reception that some of the people who worked on your moustache were hoping? Critics always come from a place. I didn't grow the moustache for the critics. Ultimately, the moustache is for the fans. And what I'm interested in is what the fans think. Because ultimately, that's why I grow the moustache. And the true test of the quality of my wonderful tash shall be time. Time itself. Well, that's undeniably true. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for speaking to me. Not a problem! Okay, that was Henry Cavill, the star of Superman. Danny, thank you so much for sitting silently during that. He seems like a lovely guy. He's a very nice man. It's kind of you not to interrupt our conversation. No, I was, I was just, you know, listening raptured. So what are we going to be reviewing next week? We, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Mate, it's been absolutely fucking, fucking ripped to shreds by the critics. Critics hate that shit. Well, you know, critics said Big Sick was good. Turns out it was shit. Good point. I can't so, wait to give a rave to a city of a thousand points. And I don't know, something else. Something else. Some other film. Okay, have a wonderful week, listeners. And we'll see you next time for more podcasting. Toodles. Bye. What are you got in there? It's a bit of crack. Crack? Crack, super hands. Relax. It's not blue, Peter. Have a nice little relaxing smoke of crack. I'll tell you what, that crack is really Moorish. Right, well, let's crack on. Don't say crack, Jez, yeah? Please, not now. Because you saying crack makes me think about crack, and I love crack. So can you not say crack? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.